Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. And welcome back. I'm Connor Stone, here with Professor Sarah Sadovoy. Hi, everyone. Hi, Sarah. We're super happy to have you here. Thank you, thank you. And uh, before we get started, I will do a, a quick introduction, just so everyone knows some of the cool stuff that you've done. For, first up, your uh, bachelor's you did at York University in tr Toronto, where we actually have a little bit of a connection because there you were a observatory coordinator. I was. It was a lot of fun. Um, I got to be the observatory coordinator for several years of my undergraduate degree. Um, and yeah, you, you, you get to play with big, expensive telescope equipment as a student. How, how can you not love that? It was great times. Really great fun. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I super appreciate that opportunity back in the day. Yeah, and York University has a really impressive observatory, even yeah. bigger than the telescope we have here at Queen's. They've, they've expanded it back since my day. Um, I was there through some of the transitions uh, early on uh, when they got, it at the time, um, a 40-centimeter telescope, but that has since been replaced, and uh, the observatory is now the uh, Allen I. Coswell Observatory, and it's you know, they've, they've really upped uh, their uh, capabilities since I was a student, but it's still um, great to see that they're they're maintaining all of that outreach. And it's great that you guys are here, too. Yeah, it must have been very exciting being there, part of the transition. Um, I note as well that uh, you're a bit of a poet. and <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. <laughs> and you actually have poets poetry from your undergrad days that you took from lectures, is that correct? Yes, um, this was something that actually um, my sister did when she was a student, and now that I'm a professor, I apologize to all my professors, but um, sometimes your professors might say something a little poetic, um, especially taken out of context, and there's a lot of poetry you can grab from physics. Um, you know, because you're, you're talking about extremes, things that are extremely big or extremely far or extremely small, and you need to come up with analogies to sometimes describe that. Um, and, you know, you also have some very flowery language, charm quarks, for example. Um, there's, there's something very poetic in having something called a charm object in, in physics. And it lends itself sometimes into something that we call lecture poetry, uh, where you take verbatim words from your class, but you know you you 
mix and match different lectures such that you create a poem. This is something that I used to put on my website when I was a student, and I'm surprised you found it. <laughs> I dug up your old website, and I, I thought it was great great to see you sort of connecting the artistic and the scientific world. That's I, always... I enjoyed it, and I, it, it also meant that I was paying extra attention to all of my lectures because I was listening for tidbits that I could uh, turn into uh, lecture poetry. Even better, anything to keep your focus. I had some very good professors, and hopefully I have become a very good professor. <laughs> For sure. So after York University, you moved to the University of Victoria in yes. BC. Yes, yes. And there you did your master's and PhD and um, sort of began your research career, which um, with a, a quick scan through the internet, I see has been quite extensive. You have either been to or um, worked with observatories all around the world. Yes, um, lots of fun. The names may not mean much to people, but there's the IRAM in Spain, JCMT in Hawaii, SMT in Arizona, GBT in West Virginia, Karma in California, OMM in Quebec, Alma in Chile. So at least the the locations give you a sense that at space and on the backs of airplanes, um, telescopes are in weird places sometimes. On the back of an airplane, you've yeah, used that one. That's Sophia. Sophia, uh, yeah. They, they modified an old, oh, is it a 737? I can't remember what the number for the plane is, but an old. It was a big one, though. Yeah, old giant plane. Um, so it has a door in the back that can open and it's sealed from the the compartment where people work and, and are inside the plane during flights, um, where there is a telescope, and the telescope is on a you know very sophisticated platform that keeps it very steady so that you point with the airplane. And so the plane has this ridiculously complicated flight path because you are pointing on your science target based on your flight path, not based on any sort of slewing of the telescope at all. So I'm glad that I am not the person who has to develop the, the, the program that is going to design how all of these flight paths are, are built up. Uh, that is not a easy task, but uh, it's really cool because you go, you know, 35, 40,000 feet above the ground. So you're above a huge amount of the atmosphere and you're able to see things that you can't see from the ground because of our atmosphere. And so that makes it a very helpful probe. It also means that you can add new instruments and, and modify things unlike a space telescope, which if you launch it, you, you better have included everything at that moment. Um, and you get to travel with the telescope if you are lucky. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I have not been able to travel with the telescope when I've had data taken. Uh, it's just worked out that it's not happened, but uh, it is something that you are able to do, and I'm told it is quite fun. That would be really exciting, yeah. And uh, Sophia really shows you the lengths that astronomers will go to to get even a little bit above the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got space, you've got balloon telescopes, which our colleague, uh, Laura, uh, Professor Laura Fissel at Queen's works on. You have um, airplanes, you have the tops of mountains in very low oxygen where your brain gets a little loopy. 
uh, just to get over a little bit more atmosphere and get away from all the lights from cities. Um, you know, it, 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 it's so varied where we will put a telescope, but uh, I'm, I imagine we will only go to crazier lengths in the future, perhaps on the moon, which would be pretty cool. Um, you know, then you've got you know facilities like Lisa, where you're going to launch telescopes into space in special configurations. You know, we 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 go to quite substantial lengths. That is true, for sure. And you mentioned Laura Fissel's mm-hmm. uh, balloon telescopes. We're certainly going to have to have her on the podcast as well at some oh, point definitely. because. Those, those are very cool telescopes. Yes, 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 yes. Um, she, she is an expert in the construction, the launching, the science of those facilities. All right. And um, now you're a assistant professor here at Queen's University. You've been with us for about a year now. Yeah. And uh, very busy starting your career as a professor and somehow you've still managed to remain very involved in outreach activities and been helping out us graduate students with all sorts of different tasks. So I don't know how you do it, but thank you very much for that. Well, you and... make it easy because you organize it all and I just have to show up and help out. And I, I mean, I love outreach. I've always loved outreach. Um, as you mentioned, I was observatory coordinator as a as a undergrad. And I think that was my outreach bug. It bit me and I've never lost it since. I, I find it fun. So, you know, when there are opportunities to, to do so, I, I grab on them. Yeah. And I'll, I'll use this opportunity as a shameless plug for one of our outreach events. You're uh, very much helping out with our upcoming Mars Perseverance rover landing party live stream. And so anyone who wants to see that, that'll be on February 18th. We'll have links in the podcast description and also on our Facebook page. All right. And um, so that's that's our introduction for Sarah Satafoy. And now we can get into a little bit of the, um, the science. And one question that sort of I, I would like to start off with is what got you interested in star formation, the subject that we're going to be diving into today? Yeah. So um, my research is in looking at the initial stages of star formation and planet formation in our galaxy. And this was not a topic that I had initially known much about before entering grad school. Uh, I knew roughly how stars formed, but I hadn't thought about studying it uh, because most of my experiences in undergrad were in optical um, observations and, you know, through the observatory, through coursework, through projects with professors. So I hadn't thought about star formation because star formation is not something you can observe or really study in detail if you look at visible light, the light that your human eye can detect. You have to kind of go to longer wavelengths if you're going to see anything. And I kind of like that. You know, we talked about how I like lecture poetry. Well, I like being able to see the unseeable. I think the mystery and the puzzle that you get from star formation is so intriguing that I'm still enamored with it today. So for me, what got me into star formation was just the excitement of those concepts of just the mysteriousness, the beauty of it, um, because you get some really stunning pictures. And um, the knowledge that there was going to be at the time 
uh, a lot of data coming from a new telescope. It was the Herschel Space Observatory. It was launching around the time that I was starting my master's. And it was going to start, you know, providing data around the time that I would be needing data for projects. And so I got to join some really cool surveys as a grad student looking at star forming regions, stellar nurseries in wavelengths of light that we never really had been able to ever look at them before because this was a space telescope. You're not just above the atmosphere in a plane or above a lot of the atmosphere on a mountain or in a balloon, you're in space. There's no atmosphere in space that you have to contend with. So you can see everything. And it made such a difference to the types of images that we were getting. So instead of these dark clouds, things that we, we couldn't see anything because there was, again, no visible light coming from them. They're cold, so they don't emit invisible light. They they're dusty, so they block visible light. It's like looking through a smog cloud. You don't see anything on the other side. Um, and so it, it, it was just, there was, it looked like this empty region of space. And then you look at it with facilities like Herschel and it's glowing and it's structured and it's beautiful and it's bright. And it's got all of these weird um, shapes and, and features to it. And you're like, this is awesome. I, 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 I loved it. So for me, star formation, what attracted to me it was the, the prospect of future data and the fact that I really like just the concept of being able to see things that the human eye will never be able to detect. That just appeals to me. Well, I think that's a good explanation of why this was so <laughs> exciting. You've got me really excited to talk more about this in the next segment. But before we before we go on to our first break, I think this would be a good point to sort of uh, define some of our background terms. Sure. So maybe if you could say a bit about what is a star forming region, what is a proto star, some of these words that we're going to need um, when we dive deeper in. Sounds great. So a star forming region is, as you might expect, a region where stars form. Uh, these are clouds of gas and dust that exist in our galaxy. And we'll talk probably more about those concepts uh, very uh, soon. I'm just going to give broad overview right now. So these are the locations where stars are going to form. Stars don't form just anywhere in our galaxy. They form in these specific clouds. And we call them molecular clouds because they're primarily formed of molecular gas or star-forming regions. Protostars are baby stars. They're stars that are in the process of forming, but they haven't quite fully formed yet. So you could think of them as like toddler stars. Um, they are stars that are still growing. They're still um, developing their surroundings. They're forming planets, but they haven't necessarily formed planets just yet. Um, they are growing stars, but they haven't actually become an adult fully formed star just yet. And then um, how we observe these regions is primarily through observations at far infrared and radio wavelengths. And I might also use the term millimeter or submillimeter, and that just corresponds to the type of light. And that's basically a range between infrared and radio in terms of wavelengths. The idea being that these regions are cold. I mean, until you have formed a fully formed star, you don't really have much heating going on, so it's a very, very cold environment. And cold things don't glow in visible light. Uh, you can think of your toaster, 
as an example, when your toaster is on, it glows red, and that tells you it's super hot. But once the toast comes up, your toaster goes from glowing red to, you know, no longer glowing pretty quickly. But if you put your hand near your toaster, you still feel heat. And that's because the toaster element is no longer hot enough to glow red, but it's still hot enough to glow in heat. So if you were to put on infrared goggles, you would see your toaster light up. Well, that's kind of how telescopes work. We can't see star forming regions in visible light because they're not warm enough, but telescopes let us put far infrared goggles on, or they let us put some millimeter goggles on, and suddenly we can see all the cold stuff in there light up because they're good at emitting at those wavelengths, but they're not good at emitting at visible light because visible light requires a certain temperature, and these things are not at that temperature. All right, that makes sense. And for from your perspective, when you say these things are cold, are you meaning they're just below the temperature of the surface of a star, or are they really <laughs> cold down that like frozen? Um, that's a very good question. Um, we typically say that they are uh, about, let's say, thirty Kelvin which means they're 30 degrees above absolute zero. So they are very, very cold, these star-forming regions. They are not anywhere near a star's temperature. Now, a protostar, as you approach the protostar, you will start to get warmer and warmer temperatures, but the vast majority of a um, star-forming region is going to be at temperatures less than 30 Kelvin. So you need to have very sensitive instruments, basically incredibly sensitive detectors that can detect very cold signals from space because these things are not warm. They're very cold. 30 Kelvin is certainly not warm. Colder yes. than minus 200 degrees Celsius is... That would be correct. Probably not be very comfortable to be out there. <laughs> No, there's lots of reasons why you probably don't want to find yourself in those sorts of conditions. <laughs> For sure. All right. Well, I think that is a good setup, getting everyone excited to learn more about these star-forming regions. So we're going to go to our first break, and when we're back, we will dive deeper. Hello, Nick here. I'm just stopping by to let you know that the Queen's Observatory is always here to answer your space questions. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube by searching for Queen's Observatory and looking for our logo. There will also be links to all of these online channels in the podcast description. We're always happy to talk about the universe, and if you ask a really big question, we just might have to do a podcast about it. That's all from me. Time to learn more about our amazing universe. And welcome back. So now we're going to talk uh, in a little more detail about these star forming regions. And one thing that you mentioned at the beginning of your descriptions that caught my attention is dust. And so could you describe for us what is dust really in, in the context of these star forming regions? Sure. So dust is something that I study uh, quite a bit. It is uh, a huge interest for me because dust is not only how astronomers probe the properties of star-forming regions, dust is represents the building blocks for forming planets. So 
dust is really important for both star formation and planet formation and understanding both processes. So I'm, I'm really, really interested in dust and a lot of my research focuses on it. So dust is basically a uh, catch-all term that we use to basically mean solid particles in space. And these are really, really tiny particles for the most part. So dust comes in two different flavors. You can have dust grains that are silicates, which is like sand, and you have dust grains that are carbon-based, like graphite. And they're really small when they're just in the in, in regular space, all right? So in, in floating around in space, not in star formation and not in planet formation, these are really, really tiny, tiny particles. These are like nanometer size. So you can think of them as incredibly small, very, very fine particles of sand or very, very fine particles of smoke just floating in space. Now in star forming regions, you're looking at areas of space that have slightly higher densities than just ordinary space. You know, you've got material collecting. You need to collect material before you're going to form a star, and star-forming regions are where that material is starting to collect. And if you collect material, you're collecting gas and you're collecting dust. So you start to get higher and higher concentrations of dust. And so dust ends up being an incredibly good probe of where structure, where mass, where things are located in star forming regions because you're able to see more stuff in one particular location based on seeing more dust in that particular location. And so that helps us understand the structure of these star forming regions. But as you start to gain more and more material in one area, you end up having the dust grains get closer and closer to each other. And so they're able to stick together and become bigger and bigger and bigger. And so this process of dust grain growth is ultimately what's going to produce a planet. So in star forming regions, we typically say, you know, dust grains have already grown a little bit. They might be a micron in size compared to, let's say, a nanometer size. And you see in regular space. But then in locations where you start to see planets forming, you need to go from micron size to millimeter size to boulders. And that process is a very complicated and long process that we're still trying to understand. And so a lot of my work is understanding how dust grows in star forming regions and then how those dust grains end up becoming the building blocks to ultimately form planets down the line. So I'm really, really interested in dust grains from both perspectives because we need to understand dust to understand the properties of star forming regions. If we want to know where all the mass is, where all the stuff is located, and we want to also understand dust in terms of planets. So dust is like incredibly important for all aspects of star formation and planet formation. And there's still a lot of questions that we want to answer about it. So that's pretty incredible how many different ways that uh, dust informs you about these regions. Maybe that's something I'll be thinking about next time I'm cleaning my house. <laughs> Not quite the same material between dust that you have in your house and, and dust that you see in space. Uh, I have a cat and a lot of the dust in my house is thanks to my cat. You're not going to see that kind of dust in space. As No matter how much he sheds, he's not shedding enough to, to affect a star-forming region. <laughs> All right. So it's, it's different kind of dust. Different kind of dust, yes. That's good to know. Now, 
we know where the dust in your house comes from, from your cat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but where does the dust in space come from? That's a great question. Um, in general, we think that dust can form in two different ways. The ultimate answer is dust, if it's carbon-based or silicate-based, the material that is needed to produce dust has to come from stars. You know, we are all star stuff, as Carl, Carl Sagan used to say, because, you know, if our universe started hydrogen, maybe a little bit of helium to begin with, everything out, outside of that was produced in the interiors of stars. And the stuff that stars produce, star stuff, is going to work its way into forming dust grains. So dust grains... Long and short, the materials that produce the dust grains are materials that were processed inside stars that have long since gone boom or, you know, radiated all of their material away. The actual question of where the dust grains are built is still up for debate. There are people who think that dust grains are built when a star starts to die. We call that stardust. So you could have a supernova go off and it produces dust in its, uh, the material that it expels. You could have a star more like our sun die and go through a planetary nebula phase and it releases material that way, or it just expels material as it's in the process of dying. Um, and that uh, would release materials like carbon and oxygen that can form dust grains um, in the expellent of those stars. But there are some who say, well, that material isn't going to survive the process. Those processes are too violent. They're not going to allow, they might form dust, but then they're going to destroy it pretty quickly. So what they do is they release the ingredients for dust into space. And then eventually those ingredients are going to condense and form dust somewhere else away from the star. So they didn't form the dust grains with the star, but they formed the dust grains in space, having the materials just released from the star as constituents, as ingredients for forming the dust. And we're not quite sure which one is correct. There are differences between the types of dust that you would get, the chemistry, the structure of the dust. Um, and uh, it's still up for debate how dust is actually produced. But the short, I guess, answer is stars are involved because we need carbon, we need silicon, we need oxygen, we need magnesium, we need iron, we need sulfur to form the kinds of dust that we're seeing. And all of that came from a star at some point in time. So stars are involved in forming dust grains and dust grains are involved in recycling into new stars. So the, the, it, it's, it's a bit of a, a cycle. Okay, so now we've learned a little bit about what dust is and how it's connected to the star-forming regions. Getting a little bit more specific now, I wonder if you could tell us about how it is that you actually observe the dust using telescopes such as ALMA. Yeah, so for those who don't know, uh, ALMA is an array of telescopes in Chile. It stands for the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. And all of these telescopes are working in tandem to observe the same patch of the sky. So by working together, these telescopes are able to produce a combined image that has a much higher resolution. You can see much finer detail than you could from each telescope alone. So this really enables us to peer deep into star-forming regions and start to look at the 
areas where planets are forming. So to give a little bit more context, planets form around these protostars, these baby stars, in a disk of dust and gas. So you can think of it as a baby star is a mound of butter that is in the center of a pancake. All right, that pancake is this disk of dust and gas, and the mound of butter in the middle is the baby star. Planets form in that pancake, in that disk of dust and gas. They don't form, um, you know, at necessarily at the same moment that the stars form, uh, like at that same instant, but they form with the star as the star is building up its own mass, as it's growing, as it's going from toddler, which is what a protostar is, to a adult star, a fully formed star. So there's a number of steps that take place, but ultimately planets are forming in these disks. We often call them protoplanetary disks because we expect these disks, these pancakes surrounding these baby stars to be the sites where planets form. And we definitely see evidence that you know, those are the locations where we're seeing dust grain growth really happen because you need to, again, go from things, the dust grains that are micron size and clouds to boulders to be planets. So you want the locations where the dust is growing the most. And those locations are the disks around young stars. So a lot of my research is looking at the properties of these young disks, trying to infer the rate of dust grain growth, and also understanding how the initial conditions of the cloud and the environment from which the star formed, the cocoon of dust and gas that are, the star is forming out of, how that influences the properties of the disk so that we can see what kind of planets a young star could produce down the line and what that means uh, for our own solar system. So uh, I, I and my team are looking at lots of young disks with ALMA to really understand grain growth, disk properties, and connecting this back to the local environment from which this, these young stars and these young disks were produced out of. All right. So that's how ALMA looks at these young protoplanetary disks. And um, one thing in particular that a lot of your observations involve is polarized light measurements of these dust grains. So perhaps you could tell us what does it mean? Or what does this polarized light tell you? Yeah. So uh, very, very briefly, polarized light means that your light has a preferred direction. So unpolarized light is your light has no preferred direction and that is, it can, it can have any, you know, as it approaches you, there's no preferred direction for, uh, for it. But when you have a preferred direction, that's when you start to see polarization. A great example of polarized light is if you're standing in front of a lake and, and near sunset and you got light uh, reflecting off of the lake towards your eye. Even if you're wearing sunglasses, that reflected light is blindingly bright. And that's because light reflected off of a surface is polarized and regular sunglasses assume the light that's hitting it is unpolarized. So if you wear specialized polarized sunglasses, you are able to filter out reflected light that regular sunglasses cannot do. So that's the difference between 
unpolarized light and polarized light. There's a preferred direction with the polarization. So I look at polarization um, at, at two different scales. And we think that the mechanism behind the polarization is completely different at both of these scales. So uh, I'll try to briefly go over uh, what, what we think is going on and how we're going to use that. So first, if we look at the polarization of light coming from these disks, these, these pancakes around these young protostars, the polarization signature often uh, appears to be this scattered mechanism, what I just explained with the lake and sunlight, how you have scattered light hitting us and that it produces a preferred direction. This is um, a relatively new theory that people have been exploring in, um, in young disks. And I've done a number of uh, studies for a particular star forming region. And one of uh, our main results that our team has found is that the polarization that we tend to see towards young disks does seem to be consistent with scattered light. So that mechanism, like what we see with lakes. And that is really important because it actually can help us trace dust grain growth much more easily than we could do um, necessarily with just looking at the light itself. It gives us an added um, ability to measure grain growth. So that's really, really cool and makes it a very important probe. I also study polarization on larger scales on the, on, in the cloud itself. And in the cloud itself, we don't think scattering is a important mechanism because to have scattered light, you need to have so much stuff that your light can't escape before it hits a neighboring dust grain. And while star forming regions are denser than average space, they're not so dense to have that kind of scattering event happen at great numbers. In disks, you have that much more concentration of material that yes, you do expect to see scattering, but in the larger star forming region, you don't expect that. Instead, we think the polarization from these environments, from the larger cloud, is happening because the dust grains themselves are aligned in a specific direction. And so if your dust grains, specifically if they are elongated, that they're a football shape instead of, let's say, baseball shape or basketball shape, they're not spheres, they're more like a football they're going to preferentially have light that has a direction along the, the, the long axis of the football instead of the short axis of the football. So if all of your football-shaped dust grains are aligned in a particular direction, you will see a preferred direction for the light coming towards you. You will see a polarized signature. And we think that the dust grains are aligned with respect to a magnetic field. And so this allows us to trace the magnetic fields in these star forming regions and understand how magnetic energy can influence these star forming regions using polarization signatures. So polarization can actually tell us a number of different things, but you have to be very careful because you have to make sure you know what's producing the polarization so you can use it properly. And so my work looks at it from a number of different directions on a number of different scales. And we have to take into account, hey, in, we're looking at this scale, it's probably this mechanism versus we're looking at this other scale, we're looking at disks, it's going to be this different mechanism. And sometimes it's ambiguous and we have to run models or we have to look at simulations or use other data in order to distinguish what we think is actually happening.
it can be a challenge. <laughs> it sounds very complicated indeed. And uh, one thing that I wonder about, you mentioned that um, these dust grains, if they're elongated, then sort of like iron filings, they'll align themselves with the magnetic field. Is it common for these dust grains to be elongated? Do you have an understanding of like what fraction of the dust is playing a role in giving you this signal? Um, that is an excellent question. And at present, we don't have a good constraint on what we think the typical grain shape should be. Uh, we, I mean, spherical is a very special shape, but we know that they can't be 100% spherical because we do see evidence of polarization from uh, dust, either both from emission of dust grains, so this is dust grains just glowing at long wavelengths, but also from dust grains absorbing background starlight. We see polarization from that as well. And the, you can only get that signature if your dust grains are elongated. So a fraction of dust grains must be elongated in order for us to even see these signatures. If dust grains were 100% spherical, there would be no polarization because there's no preferred direction if your object is a sphere. Uh, so this is uh, still an open question that is that people are trying to explore. It is very difficult to get a good constraint on the fraction of dust grains that are footballs versus basketballs, but there are attempts to try to better understand that. And one thing that I'm trying to do with my team is understand uh, grain alignment efficiency. The idea being that how efficient are dust grains aligned with a magnetic field and can that tell us something about the grain size and the grain shape distribution? All right. Well, that sounds like very interesting uh, results that are going to be coming out of your work soon. Hopefully uh, soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, for now, I think that's a good place to leave off for our second break. And when we come back, we'll sort of uh, take a little step back and think about some of the bigger picture questions. Hi, it's Nick. While we're really proud of our content at the Queen's Observatory, we would be remiss if we didn't mention some of the other great resources out there. The McDonald Institute, the Royal Astronomical Society, and the Astronomy on Tap programs are all very enthusiastic about bringing the universe down to Earth. Mary Beth at CFAC is also involved in many outreach programs for all ages that you should check out. Links to all these online programs will be available in the podcast description. And with that, let's get back to this fascinating discussion. And welcome back. So now that we've learned all the nitty gritty details about the nitty gritty dust, I uh, would like to sort of ask some, some bigger questions and one that came to mind while you were describing this dust life cycle where the dust is formed by stars and then the dust is involved in forming new stars or in these star forming regions, you got to wonder how it got started. And so how did the first stars form without their dust? That is a phenomenal question. Uh, so this is not my uh, specific area of research, although I am interested in this concept because I'm interested in dust, where it was produced and how it influences star formation. And so, understanding star formation from the very beginning is part of that process. 
So when you have the very first stars forming, we don't think there was any dust present. You had hydrogen, you maybe had some helium, you had a very different universe than what you see today. So the stars that formed at that point had to have formed very differently than stars that are produced now. So when you look at stars now, you look at cold, dusty, dense environments, star-forming regions, and a star is produced when you get a high-density pocket in these larger star-forming regions that is able to collapse under gravity. So I like to say star formation happens because gravity wins. You have all of these other mechanisms that try to keep that pocket of material from collapsing. You have magnetic fields, you have turbulence, you have the own internal heating of that particular pocket. But because these regions are cold, they don't have a lot of turbulence, they don't have a lot of internal heat, and so they're able to collapse much more easily under gravity. If gravity wins, you get a star. When you look at these really distant galaxies at the edge of, of the observable universe, they are not likely form. they didn't form their first stars in this, that exact same environment. And so it's a big question. How on earth did you form the first stars? It's an open question. And it's a question that does beg a lot of uncertainty because it's so hard to look at things that are that far away and that far back in time. That said, we do see distant galaxies that already have a large mass of dust present. So these are galaxies that are maybe a few billion years old with respect to um, the start of the universe. And yet they already have a fair amount of mass. So whatever first stars were formed, they are really good at producing the ingredients to end up into dust grains. Now, we don't know what those dust grains are made out of. Uh, if those dust grains are silicate-based, the dust that is like sand, or carbon-based, the dust that's like smoke. But we, we, we know that there has to be some dust already there. And if we can answer the question about what kind of dust exists at those early times, we might be able to shed some light on the types of stars that initially formed that ultimately produced those dust grains. And that could help us understand then how those first stars formed. But these are still open questions that are ongoing. And uh, I don't have a good answer for your question right now, but it, it's a very cool concept. And it's something I'm interested in exploring in the future uh, and tying that back into the kinds of dust that we see today. Wow, sounds like a very exciting question. Um, I didn't realize there was so much mystery around these first stars. Um, perhaps my, my next question brings us a little more to the present and hopefully a little closer to uh, your, your field of research. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about sort of the, the context of the star formation and how that, um, how that affects these protoplanetary disks. So obviously... These, these stars that form in these star-forming regions, there's other stars forming in that star-forming region. And do they interact with each other, or do they pass material between each other? What, what might be going on between them, as opposed to just within one at a time? Oh, yeah, we definitely see that uh, the local environment has an influence on the types of stars and the types of disks that those stars can produce. 
So one thing that I've also been interested in is binary stars. So these are two stars that are in orbit with each other. So they we think they you know they form together and they're carrying off their life together. You know they're they're twins, for example, and and they're just always together. They never they're never very far apart from one another. So they're in orbit around each other. And is it is it common for stars to form as twins or? Yeah, so one thing that we are seeing and this you know my team and other teams have been seeing is that the fraction of stars that are formed with companions is much higher at early times than it is at later times in the star formation evolution picture. So we think that stars more stars formed with a companion but then they lost their companion throughout uh, the star formation process. So uh, single stars that we see at early stages could have had a second star formed with it that it just kind of, they went their separate ways uh, early on uh, rather than they, they kind of stayed in lockstep um, all the way through to adulthood. So if you have a binary star, a binary protostar, so two protostars, two baby stars that are in a binary system, they can influence the disk properties of each other. And so if you have two stars that are closer to each other, they will truncate, they will shrink the size of the individual disks around each of the stars. And so that will have influence on the types of planets those stars can produce. We also see influence like if you have a really hot star, like one of those big, bright blue stars, the kind that eventually goes supernova. But you'd, if you have one of those stars or a bunch of cluster of those stars near a star forming region, that can also affect the properties of the disks. It's going to affect the types of stars that can be produced because it heats the surrounding environment and that affects how many objects you can ultimately produce in that region and the types of disks that can survive. So we tend to see um, irradiation, we tend to see a lot of ionization, uh, just because those stars are so hot and so powerful that they kind of just basically eat away at the environments that baby stars are going to form out of, and that's going to influence the properties of those baby stars. Magnetic fields is another big question mark. Magnetic fields can affect the size of a disk and the mass of a disk and uh, whether or not your star is going to form a companion. And that is a question that we want to really understand, uh, particularly myself and uh, Laura Fizzle at Queens. We're very interested in understanding how magnetic fields can influence the formation of stars and the formation of disks and the properties of those disks. So all of this is very much dependent on your local environment. The mass of your cloud is important. I mean, if you have a really, really high mass cloud, you're more likely to form a really high mass protostar. And the properties of that protostar is going to be different than a property of a low mass protostar. And the types of disks that the big protostar can form versus the small protostar will also be very different. You know, you're going to only form a planet that's as big as your mass reservoir with which to form planets. So if you have a bigger reservoir mass for your star and your planets, you're going to form a bigger star and bigger planets. Versus if you don't have as much of a mass reservoir, you may not even get a star. You may get a brown dwarf, a failed star, in which case you're not gonna see the same kind of planetary system in that case. 
there's just lots and lots of different uh, environmental factors that can influence these types of environments. Another thing is metal content. Uh, if you have more metals in your star, you tend to see higher fractions of planets than if you have fewer metals in your star. So that could tie back into your question about the first stars, the ones that didn't have many metals. Well, we don't expect them to have many planets. So when did the first planets form is another big question. But it also indicates that if you look at a galaxy like our galaxy versus a different galaxy that doesn't have as many metals in it, you're going to expect to see different planets and different star systems in both of those cases. All right. Well, sounds very complicated. <laughs> it was easy. It wouldn't be fun. Well, yeah, there wouldn't, you wouldn't have a career researching this if it was easy. That too, um, but it also wouldn't be fun. <laughs> it, it sounds like there's, there's still a lot of big questions that are, are open about these environments and how they form various planets. But I, I wonder, uh, looking at the future, there are many observatories that are either going to be online soon or are just in the design and planning phase right now that may be able to shed light on some of these questions. So maybe you could tell us about a couple of the observatories that you are most excited about coming online soon. Okay, most excited about. Uh, I would say that... You know, there, there are a number of upgrades to current facilities, which I'm very excited about. You know, upgrades planned for Alma, getting more dishes, expanding the wavelength coverage, which will be phenomenal and really, really powerful. Uh, and that's probably a little bit more short term and, and going to be online relatively quickly. There is the uh, uh, Fred Young Submillimeter Telescope, which is a single-dish telescope that will be in Chile that uh, Canadians have uh, substantial involvement in, including uh, both myself and uh, Laura Fissel are involved in the science working groups for, for that facility. And that is going to uh, do a great job at probing uh, not just the uh, dust, but the polarization from dust. Uh, with a very phenomenal detector that's going to have a huge field of view that's going to let us map entire clouds really quickly, and it's going to be great. So that will be really powerful for getting the magnetic field and star-forming regions and starting to really connect that to what we start to... Um, sorry, really connect that to the star formation that is ongoing in those particular uh, clouds. So that will be a fantastic instrument. There's also the uh, next generation Very Large Array, which is an extension of the current Very Large Array. Uh, the Very Large Array is um, a bunch of telescopes, that array of telescopes in New Mexico. If you've ever seen the movie Contact, uh, Jodie Foster is sitting on a hood of a car in front of one of the VLA dishes. Uh, so that is the Very Large Array. And the plan is to extend that array substantially with many, many more telescopes all over that area. And the power of that instrument is going to be looking at uh, such detail in disks that we hope we'll be able to see protoplanets. So baby planets in disks around young stars. So people have run simulations and we think that the capabilities of that instrument will be sufficient enough to actually detect 
baby planets in the process of forming in the nearest disks, which would be super cool to see. There's also the Square Kilometer Array, which uh, Christine Speckens at RMC is very heavily involved with, that's going to uh, really be a very powerful tool at even longer wavelengths than what the VLA is going to do and what ALMA is going to be able to do. It's going to be another large array of telescopes, but a good, uh, a good capability that that telescope is going to offer that we really don't have good uh, instruments to do is something called the Zeeman effect. This is a, a way of using molecular line emission to trace magnetic fields rather than the dust. And it's very challenging to do. You need to have incredibly sensitive instruments and you really need to have very um, good detectors and good calibration to really understand what's going on there and to apply the Zeeman effect. But if that is something we're able to do, it would be another very powerful probe of magnetic fields, uh, looking at magnetic field strengths and really understanding how they influence the star formation process. So those are some really, really cool instruments that are, are planned. In space, we have the Origins uh, Telescope, which is another um, planned, oh sorry, proposed, it's a proposed mission for NASA uh, to uh, do a number of different science um, topics, including transients. So these are um, you know, exoplanet uh, events like um, what Kepler was able to do, but also looking at the far infrared emission and polarized far infrared emission to study the properties of dust and polarized dust in star forming regions. And it doesn't have to be star forming regions. You can always turn those telescopes to evolve stars or regular stars and still get some cool science, but I'm going to be biased and say star forming regions. So there's a lot going on with um, even space telescopes on the horizon uh, that hopefully we'll, we'll be able to uh, see in action. One other cool thing that I'm really interested about with the Origins Telescope and also the James Webb Space Telescope, which will hopefully launch very soon, is understanding dust composition. Because these instruments will have the capability of distinguishing between silicate dust and carbon dust, which we've had that capability before, but we're going to be able to uh, do those observations with much better instruments than all the prior generations of telescopes. So that's a really cool concept that will let us really study dust composition, the origins of dust grains, and perhaps answer some of those questions about first stars. Wow, I, I didn't realize there were so many amazing telescopes coming online to answer all of these really big questions about star formation. Uh, you're, you're very lucky as a scientist to have both big and big questions and interesting questions and telescopes coming online soon that will be able to help you answer those questions. So that is very fun. I think um, to, to close off our interview, I'd like to... Um, ask a question because you're in a very special place in your career. You've, um, you've just joined Queens as an assistant professor. You've been here for about a year. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that transition has been like and if there's anything you wish you could tell your past self. Well, the transition has been um, interesting because of, unfortunately, the pandemic that is ongoing. Uh, I started in September of 2019. So I 
had about six months at Queen's before I was no longer allowed on campus. Uh, and we had to do everything remotely. And it is challenging to maintain a research group, to do all your teaching, and to still have connections to your department when you are new and you don't have the ability to just knock on people's doors or see them at lunch or at coffee. So I do definitely miss that social interaction. But I will say that uh, our department has been phenomenal at, you know, providing support and assistance throughout the transition to everyone uh, and being very cognizant of how uh, difficult this is for us all. So I I definitely do not feel alone, even though I am sadly uh, not uh, in the office with everyone else uh, and I have to work from home. Although, you know, the cat is a good companion uh, throughout all this. (laughs) Uh, if I could tell my younger self anything, it would be uh, start early when you prepare to teach. Uh, teaching, especially remote teaching, uh, and I, at the time I wouldn't have known that, but just teaching in general does uh, require a lot of energy and a lot of time, especially you know when you want to do well by your students. And starting early and preparing assessments as early as you can really does make uh, the experience a little bit lighter because you're not then rushing necessarily to learn the the clean system for delivering materials and also writing assessments at the same time. So if I could have told myself before I started anything, it would have been start a lot earlier than I did uh, in preparing to teach. And uh, perhaps it would have made the transition just a little bit easier. Fair enough. Always, always be prepared. Uh, that's some great advice for anyone uh, getting started in a teaching position. I, I think that closes off everything we wanted to talk about today. Thank you, Sarah, so much for joining us for this interview. It's been great to learn about the complicated and exciting field of star formation. It's fun. It's a fun field. And if anyone is listening and is interested in star formation and joining our research groups, you know, we're growing. So do do take a a moment to uh, see what kind of job offers we still have on the table. And uh, I'd also thank you, Connor, for, you know, having me and for keeping the outreach going in these uh, turbulent times and these uncertain times. You know, a lot of credit to you and the rest of the observatory and to the McDonald Institute team for being an engaging force with the community when we can't do so in person, but at least uh, online. So I think a lot of credit goes to you as well. Oh, thank you. And for sure, many people in the department have stepped up and really helped keep the torch going for the outreach activities. So uh, we're, we're really happy to have them involved and to have you involved, as I mentioned at the beginning with our outreach activities. So, uh, Thank you so much for helping with that. And thank you everyone else who's been helping along the way. With that, I I think we'll close off and we'll see you at the next episode. Bye. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Birth. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date.
If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.